0: this is jason albert and you are listening to nordic nation from faster skier in this episode we'll hear from a familiar voice someone in fact we've heard from recently on the podcast former elite cross-country skier noah hoffman post-race career, Hoffman has been deeply involved in the anti-doping movement as an educator, lobbyist, and content creator. What you are going to hear next is from the content creation side. A few months back, the U.S. anti-doping agency, USADA, posted a six-plus-minute video interview between Hoffman and Dr. Edwin Moses. Moses is a famed track and field athlete, anti-doping reformer, and voice for equity in sport. In this podcast, you're actually going to hear the fall unreleased 30-plus minute interview, one where Moses discusses how best to empower athletes and build racial equity. This is an opportunity to hear one of the most fearless voices in sport. Okay, here's Hoffman to introduce Moses.
1: I'm here with Edwin Moses today. Edwin is a Two-time Olympic champion in the 400-meter hurdles, winning gold in 1976 and 1984, and missed his opportunity to compete in 1980 uh, in the Moscow Olympics due to the U.S. team boycott. Uh, He also won bronze in 1988, uh, two-time world champion in 1983 and 1987, and maybe most stunningly won 107 consecutive finals in the 400 hurdles from 1977 to 1987, going nine years and nine months without losing a race. Uh, Personal best time of 4702 in 1983 was one of four times that he set the world record. Edwin was also instrumental in uh, pushing through reforms of the International uh, Olympic Committee, um, allowing athletes to benefit from government or privately supplied stipends, direct payments, and commercial endorsement money without jeopardizing their Olympic eligibility. This is what allowed professional athletes to compete in the Olympics, which was ratified by the IOC in 1981. Edwin's also been a huge player in the anti-doping movement, uh, participated in the number, participated in the development of a number of anti-drug policies, including at the USOPC before USADA existed, um, and being a huge uh, force uh in the track and field community and developing one of the sports most one of sports most stringent random in competition drug testing programs Um, and in december 1988 edwin designed and created uh amateur sports first random out of competition drug testing program he later served as chair of the u.s anti-doping agency currently is chair emeritus of the u of usada um, also uh, formed on the served on the IOC Athlete Commission and as chair of the uh, Laureus World Sports Academy was personally selected by Nelson Mandela for that role. Um, Edwin, you've just been a huge influence on the track and off uh, in the sports world in the anti-doping world. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a huge honor.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Uh, My first question is just simply uh, in this crazy time of of COVID and national uh, anti-racism and anti-police violence movement, um, how are you and your family doing?
2: Everyone is fine. Everyone in my family is fine. Um, I've had two individuals in my family that came down with the virus, but fortunately, they're all okay. So, yeah, I'm fine and staying at home and just being cautious.
1: You, uh, as I just read through some of your accomplishments, you're an icon on the track in the Olympic uh, movement as a whole in the fight for equity in sport and in anti-doping. What is the work that you're most proud of in your athletic career or your fight or your career after your personal athletic career?
2: I think all of it is, is just a, uh, you know, a work of my life from uh, uh, shepherding the Changing the amateur rules that allowed athletes to compete and make money without jeopardizing their status to uh, anti-doping. Uh, they were all things that I had a, a passion for doing because I would, I would, they were the right thing to do. So at the end of the day, you know, my, my resume is really about uh, doing things that were the right thing to do, not only for myself but also for uh, lots of other athletes uh, that don't have the opportunity to speak out and, uh, and uh, make those changes.
1: One of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you in this moment is that you wrote an op-ed in June, it was 11 days after the death of George Floyd, in which you discussed the principles instilled in you by your parents. You wrote, black people do not yet experience equality, but in the meantime, we can situate ourselves in spaces where equality lives and work to extend them. You say that you've found an equality space in sport which puts everyone, regardless of their race, on the same starting line and has them ending on the same finish line. But later in the piece, you say, what white America has learned over the last weeks, black America has known since the beginning. It doesn't matter who black men are, how excellent and brimming with integrity they might be, equality remains elusive, so elusive, that our lives and, and also our sense of safety and our opportunities in just about every sphere remain in the hands and beneath the knees of white people. You say that there is a different starting line for black people. Can you help me unpack that contradiction? Where in sport did you find equality space and where did you feel that your starting line was different from the white athletes around you?
2: Uh, well from the in terms of athletics there 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 is actually no difference, which is the beautiful thing about sport and uh even within the world of sport uh you know there there's there are some things that have gone on and that I have experienced as an african American man that aren 't quite as um, let's say fair and and fair and starting at the same actual line, especially when it comes to the politics. i think uh sports politics has for years been uh Uh, a a man's world. When I first started, it was uh, strictly a man's world because there was not even any women involved and and very few minorities. But that's changed significantly now. And uh, I I think the most uh, important thing to understand is that uh, uh, no matter who you are, you have to prepare yourself for success. And that's the most important thing. Uh, As an athlete, you prepare yourself for success every day. And in your personal life, uh, you have to do that, notwithstanding the fact that some things are unfair in life. And, um, you know, it's very difficult to explain. You really have to you walk in someone's shoes that has to experience that on a day-to-day basis. It's very subtle and, and quite insidious. But at the same time, uh, there are tremendous uh, individuals and personalities out there that uh, do the right thing that prepare themselves and are are quite willing to engage in a a playing field that sometimes may not be level.
1: And I, I really appreciated that in your piece, you pointed out some specific things that white people can do to start to dismantle racism. You said that we as white people can see and protect black people from out of control, racist citizens and police officers. We can support excellent police officers with integrity We can see and address race-based educational, environmental, and healthcare disparities. We can see and give black people a fair starting line by tackling disparate treatment in the criminal justice system and race-based economic inequalities. We can stop pretending that voter fraud is a real problem that needs to be fixed and making it harder for black people to vote. Are there specific things that white athletes as public figures can do to be a part of this change?
2: Well, if you listen to a gentleman by the name of uh, Reverend William Barber, he always talks about the fact that uh, that inequality uh, knows no bounds and race is certainly not one of them. And that there are a lot of uh, uh, especially white people, Asian people, Hispanic people all across the country that uh, that find themselves in disadvantaged positions because of the lack of uh, adequate health care uh, police, uh, uh, police, uh, differences in policing, um, uh, differences in, uh, the, the way that healthcare is delivered. There's all types of things. And it's not just related to African-Americans. I think over the last three months, uh, uh, since, uh, the country shut down because of the, the COVID virus, I think people have had a chance to really sit down and, and, and absorb, uh, some of the experiences and some of the history uh, that specifically African Americans have gone through, uh, in this country. And it's not, it's not always nice. And it's sometimes hard to digest and people are having a difficult time trying to figure out where they fit in and whether they should feel guilty, what exactly they should do. But one of my, uh, I've got an email from one of my Jewish uh, high school colleagues that I'm still in touch with. And, uh, she says she's known most of this and, 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 and she was, um, more than fascinated to, to, to watch the news reports and watch the history and, and hear the, the talk about slavery and what happened to the Native Americans and, and what's uh, happened to the uh, Hispanic Americans and, and the, the uh, Asian Americans here in the United States. And one thing she did say was that it was no longer acceptable. It was no longer good enough just to be uh, to, to not be a racist, but that, in fact, she felt that uh, she's, you know, early 60s. She said that she, it's time for her and, and, and people like her to speak up, uh, to speak up and, and, and be anti, anti-racist, to become anti-racist. It's not enough to observe it and just say it's not me, but it's time to do something to make any changes that you think are necessary. And, uh, you know, she's a, a Jewish friend of mine, and, you know, i Personally, remember the kinds of discrimination that that uh, her people and my people suffered together in high school, where we had to team up to, to uh, in some cases physically fight. So everyone has an opportunity to do the right thing. A lot of the messaging that goes on and the gaslighting and 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 the use of verbiage to to make people feel bad that can all be changed. And the, the whole thing is that if. Healthcare, for example, we need a better healthcare system because it's going to help the whole population. And uh, there are people out there that actually don't understand that and are actually voting against their best interests. Five million people out of healthcare in, uh, in the last couple of months. And uh, what are they going to do? So everyone is in the same boat, regardless of who you are. And that's uh, the commonality that we all have to realize as Americans.
1: Are there specific things that the sports community, the sports administrators in this country or globally can do to help address uh, racism and racial inequality in sport?
2: Yeah, I think uh, there's a lot you can do. I think there's uh, for example, in, in college sport, there's a dearth of, of uh, coaches, you know, black football coaches in Division One and basketball coaches in Division Two, despite the fact that the majority of the uh, the really, really top quality kids that play are African-American. Same thing in the NFL. I think there's um, plenty of space uh, within the offices of uh, Olympic sports, professional sports, corporations and everyone and every, every, everywhere that, that could be filled by qualified people if, uh, if you go out and, and look for them. And so those kinds of things need to change. And, uh, you know, you have to look around your office. If you're, if you're not African-American, Native American, Asian, Hispanic, you have to look around your office and see and ask yourself, why aren't there many people that don't look like me around me? And so if you go into an office every day where, you know, everyone's white, for example, then perhaps you need to sit back and ask the question, why is it? Are we, are we not looking for people or is there a reason why there's not... Uh, a diversity of uh, ideas and thoughts and, and uh, nationalities uh, and people around.
1: How does the anti-doping play into that conversation? You know, ostensibly the anti-doping rules ex- extend to every athlete, uh, regardless of race or gender, in the same way. But I know that we've seen high-profile athletes with a lot of resources, or even not high-profile, but athletes who have a lot of financial resources are able to fight anti-doping cases differently uh, than athletes who don't have a lot of resources. And often the way anti-doping is set up is with strict liability is that if something gets into your system that's prohibited, regardless of how it got there, it's your responsibility. But uh, you can get a reduced punishment if you... Uh, If you're able to prove that it was uh, not your fault, or some um, some sort of an innocent way that it got into your system, and so it strikes me that that having good legal representation in that fight. um, Most recently, we saw this with Chris Froome, the cyclist who was able to fight doping allegations with a massive legal team and get a reduced sentence as a result. Mm -hmm. Are there ways that the anti-doping system could better serve? But not just black people, but any people who come uh, who have fewer resources when they enter sport.
2: I think that's something for the uh, sports organizations, the governing bodies to solve. They uh, and the athletes really. Uh, uh, if there was a, 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 a uh, an athlete's union that had significant power, then those things could be covered in, in a in a uh, in an agreement with the union and between the athletes. Unfortunately, it doesn't exist. And so that's one of the weaknesses of the Olympic system, that basically everyone's a free particle, like a little satellite traveling around a far out planet, and everyone's on their own. But if there were collective bargaining agreements between the IOC or the United States Olympic Committee or any other NGB or International Federation, then that problem could be solved. There's not much as, as the United States Anti-Doping Agency we can do. Uh, We are an enforcement agency and it's not our job to provide legal services, but the other organizations, they're certainly in a position to be able to consider that. And I I feel that the athletes need to demand it. I've been a a proponent of athletes unions and representation for athletes to provide health care, insurance, retirement plans, collective bargaining, sharing in the, uh, in the in the in the television profits and so forth, I've been uh, I was probably the first one to really put that on the table back in 1981, but the athletes weren't even ready for it back then, so it it, it all fell down.
1: Yeah, and I want to dive deeper into that because I've been involved with an organization called Global Athlete, which is working to expand the athlete voice and and bring athletes together to be able to be a force for change and fight for their own rights on the international stage. But you've been involved uh, both kind of within the system and outside the system. In in 1981, when you were pushing for those reforms, you were not an official member of the IOC in any capacity, but then you went on to serve on the Athlete Commission and you were the chair of the Education Committee and yet there's still so much change that needs to be done how do you see that balance for athletes <clears throat> of kind of working within the existing system even though you've seen that yourself and Becky get really ostracized for that work and and that it's inc- really difficult to create change from within versus Kind of pushing and pressuring the IOC from without, like the global, like Global Athlete is trying to do. How do you see the avenue towards lasting change?
2: Well, I know Global Athlete uh, quite well. I was uh, working with uh, Rob Kohler from the time that uh, he came up with the idea, and I talk to him uh, probably every two to three weeks about different issues and whatnot. I'm very interested in the uh, the the athletes' union that's been started up. Uh, I guess it's for track and field right now, or maybe other sports. I'm not sure. I just saw a press release last week, but I'm all for that. And, uh, and I, I think that uh, uh, until the athletes really, uh, it's going to take some sacrifice. It's not going to happen by uh, having your name on a list. It's going to take some people who are willing to take some actions that pr- probably won't be popular. Uh, not attending certain meets if they don't get representation putting a tremendous amount of pressure on on some of the uh, organizing bodies um, because uh, at the end of the day the you know the the the, the real issue is is the financing and where the money is flowing in the sports and whether or not in certain sports it's even really necessary to have a massive federation and and meanwhile the athletes are unpaid so those are issues that are going to it's going to be a fight, some athletes are going to have to make a sacrifice, uh, which may be uh, both personal and financial, and uh, that's going to have to happen for for it to become very, very effective. I've been effective on fighting both on the inside and the outside at times, depending on what side of the uh, what side of the line I'm on but I, I know that sometimes the fight is better from the outside, and sometimes it's 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 better on the inside, but in any event. You have to really make a commitment to, to do something uh, that may not be in your, your immediate best interest for the short term or the medium term.
1: I want to transition a little bit and talk about uh, kind of the politicization of sport and this idea from the IOC that sport should be apolitical. You, you were unable to compete in the 1980 games because of the US team boycott. That was clearly a political act. I'm wondering what kind of a lasting impact that had on your career and and what your feeling is about that boycott now so many years on
2: it was horrible when it happened i don't think uh well you as an athlete if you can imagine your whole season gets snatched away from you and it happens to be olympic year that's uh you know it's 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 it's, if we were if we were mothers it would be like losing a child Uh, So it was very traumatic. We didn't have a lot of recourse back then. The athletes uh, were just beginning to be represented uh, formally with the 20% rule back in the late 70s, early 80s, after the 1978 uh, Amateur Sports Act. So everything uh, was very new to the athletes and the Federation and the powers will be were very entrenched and they did not have to let things happen. There were a lot of people that were uh, in the business of, of of being sports administrators that weren't really looking out for the athletes. And the basic premise was that athletes should not be paid, period. And they were going to stand by that no matter what. But nonetheless, you know, monies were flowing behind the scenes, and uh, it's, it's time now for the athletes to be able to uh, consolidate what it is that they want under the right kind of leadership and uh, begin to think about what it actually means to an athlete to be to be in a position where you can sacrifice your whole life from the time you're 16, 17 years old into your mid-30s and uh, what levels of compensation and other consideration that you should, you should be getting.
1: I think it's hard and I know that for me when I was a young athlete, it was hard for me to think beyond my own personal success and also to feel that I had achieved enough as an athlete to have any power or that my voice mattered as an athlete. It wasn't really until my career ended that I found my voice and, and found that I, that I did have kind of grounds to speak and find the confidence to speak up about issues that I was passionate about. How do you feel because athletes are so focused and I, I know that you were as an athlete and I was so focused on their athletic achievement, um, athletic achievements. How how do we encourage athletes to to understand what's possible if they also use their voice to push for change and to push for their rights?
2: I think one of the things that athletes are going to have to come to grips with, and I, I think it's a, a deep-seated problem, is that this whole idea of Olympism, as great as sports is and as much as I like the Olympic Games, I, I developed a passion and I became passionate and really put myself out there to fight for the right things because I realized that it was my money. I was talking about that. I could have been, I was an engineer that gave up a job because of the 1980 boy cut. I had to resign from my job as an engineer and uh, there were no uh, compensation rules in place back then. I, you're not old enough to remember, but I remember when uh, the tennis professionals were going through the same thing, pretty much the track and field is going through right now. Uh, before they had a union, before they set up the ATP, uh, people like Martina Navratilova and Billie Jean King and John McEnroe and uh, uh, oh, what's his name from uh, from Sweden uh, Bjorn Borg. All these guys were on the front line fighting for their rights. They were getting paid very little, uh, and I realized that I was on the right path. and in, in, uh, 1983, 1983, I think it was September, October. After the season was over, the first World Championships, the L.A. Times did an article on me and amateurism uh, because the rules had changed and the Olympics were coming up in 1984. And they did calculations on what my income was from all my sources, from my shoot contract and clothing contract and all the sponsors that I had. And at that time, I was making more money than NFL quarterbacks were making back in the late 80s, in the early 80s. And so I, I worked out of my own interest, but I also was looking out for the interest of the sport and I know I was right because athletes are being paid today, uh, and uh, an organization even like the IOC, which had reportedly four million dollars in the bank back in 1980, 81 when Samurates juan Antonio Samurates came in you know they 're sitting on you know a couple billion dollars in cash now, from what the reports say so uh, the whole model for 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 money 's flowing and spon- money money flow sponsorship has completely bypassed the athlete, and the athletes are the show so i I knew that I was right, and uh, I fought for my own uh, for my own benefit because I, I took it very personal. I also wanted to go to medical school, so i didn 't have time to be running around on the track if i wasn 't uh, you know getting compensated because of losing a job in engineering. Possibly foregoing a job, uh, a, a career in medicine. So I was very dedicated and serious, and, uh, uh, and that's how that's how things began. And um, uh, global athlete, I think, will will be a catalyst to, to have the athletes understand that there is a bigger picture, and there's going to be have, have to be some sacrifice to to be made. I think uh, the times are almost at the end where athletes just hope, want to be an Olympian. The Olympic games is this great idea, which I believe it is. I love the fact that it's competition, but until athletes uh, begin to exercise their rights uh, and, 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 and begin to uh, discuss with these organizations, the financial implications uh, that there are that are re- directly related to them. Uh, Until then, then there will always be athletes that uh, will discover that they're very passionate about it and want to get into the fight after. But uh, it's definitely to your benefit to get into the fight earlier rather than later.
1: The IOC's position in this discussion is that without the solidarity that they uh, promote and this idea that Uh, that athletes do not need to be compensated to attend the games or compensated for their time is that they're able to use those funds to support athletes from lower income, lower socioeconomic countries who would not otherwise have the opportunity to compete and that we would see a much smaller Olympic movement If athletes were paid to attend, and it would only include rich countries, athletes who have the ability to organize, and it would leave a lot of people out of the Olympic movement. What are your thoughts on those points that the IOC promotes?
2: I think it's a very cavalier attitude. I think if through the Olympic Games and and through professionalism of all sports, if you were able to out of all the Olympic gold medalists, if half of them became very, very wealthy and very, very influential in their country. They could do all of the above themselves. It doesn't take a whole global uh, network to do that. The athletes may have different issues than the IOC has. Uh, and the IOC may not want to discuss some of the issues or, or have athletes even demonstrate about some of the issues that are personal to them and dear to them. So I, I completely disagree with that. That's, that's the old model, uh, the Pierre de Coubertin model. And uh, uh, But look at, look at uh, professional football or tennis. You know, you don't hear anything about the Tennis Federation or the ATP doing all these projects. It's the athletes who are doing it and the athletes who, whose uh, passion it is uh, that, that actually gives to the community. It's always the athletes that are, that are they're, 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 uh, the operatives and the ones that are most responsible for any of the goodwill that comes out of the Olympic Games. It's all based on the personalities of the peoples in those sports that makes a lot of sense
1: i want to ask you you also wrote an op-ed more recently talking about reform at wada and there's been this kind of stunning battle that has been being waged in in the media at the moment between uh those who are uh promoting the current WADA governance structure and those who are pushing for WADA reform and you've been attacked for your words and you've, you've been labeled as a pawn of, of Travis and a pawn of USADA. And I, I want to A, give you a chance to respond to that, but also I want to know, you know, Travis and and you've been a huge part of this, have been really pushing for change on the global stage. And I, uh, and those of us, a global athlete, and so many athletes are also see the problems at WADA and the need for reform and the need for independence. But I think that there's a skepticism that this is an American position and that it doesn't reflect uh, global positions. Um, Can you kind of speak to why... Why is it that Travis and you are the right people to lead this push, and, and is it just an American position, this push for change, or is it a global position that should be
2: fought for globally? Well, it's a very international position. There are a lot of people who feel the same way that we are, but uh, for, unfortunately for them, they live in countries where they have a sports minister and they come under the auspices of that sports minister. We don't have that problem uh, for water. Their problem with us is that we have a, 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 a completely independent board of directors who's able to, to to review our policies, make our decisions without, without fear and without prejudice. Uh, that is the model. I, I don't mind being attacked by water under any circumstances whatsoever. Uh, when, when they begin to attack me or anything that I say, then I know that the message is, has hit home. Uh, and essentially, you know, when, when, when the message, when the message cuts through the quick, then attack the messenger. So I don't mind that at all. I've been accustomed to that last 40 years, have no problem with it, really expect it. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been writing articles for the last 25 years and, uh, this one seems to have hit particularly hard. Uh, but I was the only American at the executive board committee for the fa- for the past eight years of water. I hear the conversations. I know the politics. I I know the, the alliances and the politics of the entire situation. I've heard nasty things said to Becky Scott and, and things insinuated to me as well. And uh, I fight back, just like uh, Representative John Lewis, a congressman from down here in Georgia that passed away. Sometimes you have to if you see something, do something. And uh, if you're gonna get in trouble, make sure it's good trouble. So I just see this as good trouble and it, it only has benefited the athletes.
1: It strikes me that the, the move by the ONDCP to withhold funds and to really use their leverage is kind of the only way that we're gonna see real change. What are the, what are the next steps in that fight to continue to push for this reform at WADA?
2: Well, that's a political battle. The ONDCP had uh, at almost every meeting, they've had a representative at the foundation board. So they've had people that are not myself and not Travis Tiger, because Travis Travis may or may not show up at those meetings. Generally, it's only me and the ONDCP uh, personality who's on the, uh, on the foundation board. So they've seen it with their own eyes. You don't have to believe what I'm saying. Uh, part of the report comes from them and their observations. So uh, that's a political um, decision that's going to be made by the by the federal government. We 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 uh, have to work with the ONDCP because we get our funding for, from them. But uh, there's many other countries in the world that believe the same thing, but are afraid to say it because of because they feel intimidated by either their their sports minister or perhaps someone who can affect. Uh, you know, their job and their likelihood. We hear that all the time. We hear that all the time. So there's a great move. Uh, uh, We saw athletes commissions from all over the world that were disgusted with what happened with the Russia investigation. It's been going on since 2014. Uh, The case is scheduled uh, to go in in front of the court of arbitration in sports in November. So we're talking about six years of no action, nothing but a lot of gymnastics and a lot of politics. And and uh, uh, and in my personal opinion, there's a uh, much larger anti-American movement within WADA because of the politics of the world and the Olympic games. And uh, we as United States, we are a significant voice. We have lots of allies, but in many cases, uh, uh, they don't want to make the comments and they don't want to take the, the, the stand that we do. Uh, and, and as I said before, sometimes, um, when things happen in life, you have to make a commitment. And uh, those of us that work hard at USADA to, to, um, to uh, feel the best, uh, the gold standard in, in drug testing all over the planet, we're very, very serious about what we do. And we wanna see some of the weaknesses of, of, of the situation melt away. And it's all political, it's all political. And uh, unless you're there and you see it and hear everything happen, it's very, very difficult to understand.
1: So because it's so complicated and because it's, it's at this federal government level, USADA level, WADA level, what can individual athletes do who want to support this fight and want to see a stronger and more independent WADA, what can athletes do uh, to be helpful?
2: Well, they've already done it. They stood up when they were in disgust when they saw what was happening with the Russia investigation. They stood up behind Becky Scott. Uh, uh, they understand that something's got to be done that you can't subvert in Olympic Games. Have an Olympic Committee, a a national government, and and a drug testing organization that's passing vials of urine through the wall, uh, opening up the vials of urine, replacing it with with supposedly clean urine, uh, uh, promoting drug testing amongst their athletes and supporting it uh not banning people i mean it just goes on and on and on so the athletes have have already seen the light of day and they've done uh through speaking up they've done as much as they can do they've done quite a bit they've done quite a bit wonderful
1: well dr edwin moses thank you so much for your time it's been a real honor and pleasure and uh i appreciate your insight and uh Thank you for all the work that you've done over just an incredible career,
0: both on the track and off the track.
2: All right. Thanks. Thanks, Noah. Thank you. Have a great day. All right.
0: Thanks for listening and thanks to Noah Hoffman and Dr. Edwin Moses for their time.